Amen. How about that? Yeah. Thank you so much. What a blessing. Beautiful voices and beautiful truth and lyrics. Wonderful. Well, you can turn back in your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, where we'll be this morning. In 1943, Philip Van Doren Stern self-published a short story entitled The Greatest Gift. He gave it out to family and friends at Christmas and maybe about 200 copies that he gave out. In 1944, Good Housekeeping magazine published it as The Man Who Was Never Born. But... You probably know the story by its movie title, It's a Wonderful Life. The story follows the life of George Bailey. Uh, George has uh, lived in Bedford Falls his whole life, and each time he tries to get out of Bedford Falls and pursue his dreams and his desires, something happens to prevent him from that. And so he stays, he continues to serve the benefit of the community, Uh, But as time goes on, his self-focus leads him to depression at where his life has turned out, where he's ended up. And so he finds himself on a bridge about to take his life, uh, and uh, an angel is sent to uh, jump in before him so that he jumps in to uh, save him. And it ultimately leads to a conversation whereby George says that he wished he had never been born. And so the angel is able to grant that request to George. And so from that moment on, he is in a Bedford Falls, an alternate reality, Bedford Falls, where he has never existed. And so he proceeds to go uh, back into uh, the town, but nobody knows who he is. His wife is not married to him and doesn't recognize him. His brother, whom he saved in childbirth, uh, and then later became a war hero and saved many people in World War II, has died because he was never there to save him. And so all of these things begin to happen. This, um, uh, this man who he's constantly uh, kind of fighting with, uh, Mr. Potter, uh, ends up taking over the town, and the town's not even called Bedford Falls. It's called Pottersville, and uh, every, he's kind of made it a slum. And, and so all of these things take place, and he recognizes as it goes on uh, the impact that he's really had in his life, and he ends back uh, at, the, um, at, the, at the end at the same spot, and he realizes that he's been given in, in being born and having his life. But it raises a, the important question um, that the movie follows out. What if George Bailey had never been born? And I think that's relevant to our passage this morning and Christmas in that, what if the incarnation never happened? What if the incarnation never happened? What would be the implications of that? What kind of world would we actually be living in? That's a fascinating discussion to have uh, with your family uh, and friends in the next few days. Hmm, this wouldn't have happened. This wouldn't be the reality. Of course, most significantly, there would be no way of salvation. We would all be going to hell. That's the reality. There would be no way for God to forgive us of our sins and qualify us for eternal life. 
And so this is massive. That is what Christmas is about, the incarnation of the Son of God. And there is no better text to describe this truth of the incarnation than John chapter 1, verse 14. And that's where we want to look and put our attention this morning. So follow along as I reread John chapter 1, specifically verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. From this passage, we want to observe five truths of the incarnation so that you might enjoy the greatest gift ever, uh, even more than you already do. This passage, this verse, is just pregnant with significant and precious truth. Almost every phrase of it. So what what we want to do is look first at the person of the incarnation, then the profundity of the incarnation, the presence of the incarnation, the pleasure of the incarnation, and finally the provision of the incarnation. So let's first uh, draw our attention to the person of the incarnation. Look again at verse 14. And the word. Stop there. That's our first point. The person of the word, or the person of the incarnation is the word. Who is the word? Well, John is crafting his gospel here, and he has a big introduction, 18 verses of an introduction. And so when we see the word in verse 14, it's not the first time we've seen the word. We go back to verse 1, the beginning of John's gospel. In chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. And we learn that the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God, and and that he was the creator of all things. That nothing that is in the category of created uh, falls out of his purview. He created everything. We see that the Word is eternal, says, in the beginning was the word. So the idea of this is that in the beginning, the word was already existing, was already existing with God. There's an allusion here to Genesis 1.1, right? How does the Bible begin? In the beginning. John is intentionally making that connection, And if you think about those early verses of Genesis, what do you have? We have the Spirit hovering over the waters. You have God speaking his word in order to create. So even there in an acorn-type way, you have the, the makings of what will be further articulated as what we call the doctrine of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit creating. There is no act that every, that there's no act in which, in, in all of creation, in which, all of the uh, Trinitarian persons do not participate. They all participate in creation, in redemption, in providence, in all things together. They're unified in their purpose. Now, here's another fascinating thing. John, in his prologue here, he, he starts us with Genesis in the beginning. So your attention goes back to Genesis. But then if you follow after the prologue, which is verses 1 to 18, and you pick up in verse 19 and you go into chapter two, John does something very unique that the other gospel writers don't do. He gives you, after the introduction, he jumps right into the first week of Jesus's public ministry. 
And this is kind of a rare thing. You usually have Jesus, he's over here, and then all of a sudden, like a week later, he's over there. Uh, the only other thing that we have close to this is the end of the Gospels, where you have, you can piece together the final week of Jesus' life before his death. Uh, and, and, but that's not even necessarily uh, neatly packaged for us. You have to kind of say, oh, okay, when we compare and harmonize, we know that this happened on this day and this happened on that day. But what John does for us is he gives us one day after another consecutively of the first week of Jesus' ministry. And so you have the first seven days of Jesus' ministry and the seventh day ends with a wedding, the wedding at Cana in Galilee. And so what John does is he begins his gospel and says, in the beginning, Genesis, and then you have seven days that begin the public ministry of Jesus, concluding with a wedding. Where else do you have that? Genesis 1 and 2. So John is like screaming at you and he's saying, this one is God. This one is God of very God. I'm going to tell you in every possible way, in my structure, in uh, the text itself, that the word was God, uh, that Jesus will say in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. Uh, before Abraham was, I am. He has all these I am statements to say that just like Moses was told the name of God, he's the self-existent one. He is I am in Exodus three fourteen. Jesus takes up that name for himself and he says, I am. I am. And then he, he says, I am the bread of life. I'm the, the true vine. And he connects all of these things together. And so John's focus in his gospel is on the, the deity of Christ. This is the word. He is the eternal one. He has always been in existence. He's also described in this way. The word was with God. The word was with God. Now, this is very important because what it tells us is that there is a distinction between the Father and the Son because to be with someone means you are, you're in some way not that person, right? So there's a distinction here introduced. And this also indicates the relationship that is possessed. They're with one another. Uh, later, he will further uh, explain this. Um, in verse 18, when he says, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. That idea of the bosom, it's like at, at the chest. It's like the closest place of intimacy you could be. It's like in the pocket of somebody. And, and that's the idea. The Father and Son are so close, so intimate. And this is the eternal relationship. God is a relational God because he's always been that. He didn't have to create creatures in order to have a relationship, in order to love someone. So you can't love if there's not another person to love. And so our God does not come to love and do something he had never done before. He's always eternally loved because of his very nature. So our God, down to the bottom, down, down to the studs, is a God of love and a God of relationship. And so he was with God. There's a distinction. And yet the next phrase is very quick to, to help us see that there is equality with God. Not only was the word with God distinct, but the word was God. And so they are equal in essence. And here we have what many of the creeds and confections have articulated so helpfully, but, but they're just drawing from the truths found here in John and elsewhere. I mean, if we just had John 1, 1 to 18, we would be Trinitarians because it is so clear that there is a distinction and yet, a, and, and yet an equality between persons. One essence shared among the persons and three persons. There's one divine essence and three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. But why refer to the second person of the Trinity as the Word? Why call him the Word? Well, because 
uh, the word is one's self-expression. It's how you uh, give expression to yourself. And so the word is the self-expression of the Father. This is how God expresses himself. It's interesting. In the Old Testament, you have this phrase that comes up over and over again that says, the word of Yahweh came to, you know, the prophet, right? And, and oftentimes I think we think of that in the abstract. We think it's just like they heard words. But uh, there's a good case to be made that this is an, an indication of the second person who is coming to bring a message to these prophets. The word was at work before John 1.1, 1, 1, if you will. He was disclosing God's message. You also have him coming. The word of God comes to heal and rescue in Psalm 107 verse 20. He makes known the mind of Yahweh. The son reveals the father. This is what we see in verse 18. Look at there. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, that's referring to the son, and just notice how explicit that is, that it refers to the, the only begotten one as God. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. I don't know how much more explicit you can get from John to, to see Jesus as God. He actually brackets his gospel this way. He, he calls him the only begotten God, the Son, but then he ends his gospel in John 20 with Thomas saying, my Lord and my God. These are the brackets. But here, you see... Uh, that, that he's revealing the Father. He has explained him. We get our word uh, to exegete, to bring the meaning out of something from this. It's a preacher's favorite word, you know. Uh, and so the Son explains, he reveals the true nature of the Father. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. All the fullness of deity dwells in him bodily. And so he reveals the Father to us. He's in the form of God, Paul says in Philippians 2, which means it's the, 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 the essence is everything that it is to be God. And so John begins by establishing the, the person of the incarnation, the word. And by doing so, he shows us that this word is truly God. And then this leads us then to what's such an incredible two words, became flesh. And this leads us to our second point, the profundity of the incarnation. Because of the person of the incarnation, to say that he became flesh is so profound. It, it really blows our minds. It blows our circuits. The profundity. Look at, again at verse 14. The word became flesh. The two hardest doctrines to really wrap our minds around are the Trinity and the Incarnation because they connect to each other. They're, they're tied together. This is one of the greatest miracles, the Incarnation. In the Incarnation, the Eternal Son took on humanity while remaining truly God. This verb, became, does not mean was, it doesn't mean was changed into, but it means to, it took on or assumed. So it's not that by adding a human nature, it changed his divine nature. No, he assumed a human nature while remaining truly God. In becoming flesh, the word did not cease to be what he was previously. And so it was a becoming through adding, not 
subtracting. At Philippians chapter two explains this and further depth, we actually looked at some of this last week, but Philippians two verse five says, have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although existing in the form of God, notice that same idea as John, he was in the beginning, he was already existing, he was existing eternally in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be, to be grasped, to, to, to clutch onto, but, but emptied himself. And that emptied himself, his idea of like, in Greek, it's like nullifying himself. It, it was, he didn't grasp onto the privileges of his deity, but humbled himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men. And so the nature of this uh, nullifying himself or emptying himself is defined in the text as this, by taking. How did he empty himself? How did he nullify himself? By taking. And that emptying, we kind of can, can wrongly think, oh, in English, we think, oh, it's like he poured out his deity. He stopped to be divine. That is not at all, that's a quick way to heresy. Uh, that is not at all what the text is saying. It's this idea of, it's to, to, to make himself nothing, to, to, to nullify himself. And this is a pro- profound indeed. See, to be God means you don't have any sense in which you are becoming. Like there is no becoming in God. There's only being. God is pure spirit. He, he is pure being. God doesn't become anything, right? We, we know that God is immutable. It means he, he does not change. He's impassable. He doesn't suffer. And, and so he can't do that because think about immutability. If God could change for the better, then he would not have been the best. If he could change for the worse, then he's not the best also. So, so you, you can't have any change in God. He is from himself. He is simple in the sense that he's not composed of parts. He is pure being. So there's no sense in which there's becoming in God. He has life in himself. And so the fact that this word become is not something spoken of God is so stunning that we have it here. It's so profound. The one who cannot become and cannot change took on a changeable human nature while not changing in his divine nature. You see how we have to be really careful that Richie likes to talk about the razor's edge. Of th- we are walking on that edge. You know, we got to be very careful with our language here. What can be said of the person of Christ in Scripture uh, must often be further clarified as to whether it is according to his divine nature or according to his human nature. So you could say that the person of Christ died, but to be accurate, we would have to further clarify if we wanted to, to say according to his human nature. Why? Because the divine nature cannot die. I mean, this is one of the reasons he takes on flesh, because God cannot die. Or he becomes tired and weary and sleeps in the boat. But we say according to his human nature to be specific. Or we might say he, he knew what was in man. He needed no one to tell him what was in man. Or he knew things about people. He read their minds. But we would have to further clarify and say according to his divine nature. And so this is just so profound about the incarnation that when you think about like what's happening in, in 11 AD, right? Like Jesus is maybe a teenager at this point. Um, he's, he's going to school. He's learning things in his human nature, but in his divine nature, he's everywhere present. He's uh, omnipotent. He knows all things, right? All of these things. This is the profundity of the incarnation. 
What did he become? What did he become? It says flesh, flesh. Flesh here, in this context, according to John, refers to a human nature. A human nature. And now flesh in scripture by other authors, uh, and even, even John can use it this way, can refer to something negative, right? Like, like a sinful flesh, the idea. But that's not the idea John has. Uh, listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 3. It says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So he's in the likeness of sinful flesh. Flesh indicates the whole person, body, and soul. So we might say all of the qualities and characteristics of being human, Jesus possessed, except for sin. Now, sin is not inherent what it means to be human. It is after the fall, but he is all that it is to be human. Like humans, Jesus was born. He grew from an infant into a man. He grew in wisdom and stature, according to Luke 2. He hungered, he thirsted, he ate, he drank, he slept, he cried, he laughed, he was tempted, he expressed, experienced pain. And like humans, he died. Yet, as God, he continued to remain omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, immutable, impassable. So became means he took on another nature to his divine nature. Thus, this makes Christ, the person of Christ, one with two natures. He is one person who has two natures. I mean, do you know anyone? who is one person with two natures? No. He has a divine nature and a human nature. Yet these natures are not confused or mixed in this union. He didn't become a third thing. Uh, this is a fun word. Theologians talk about a, a tertium quid, like a third thing. It's like, what? Uh, he didn't become, it's like if you had apple juice and grape juice this morning and you mix them together, you know, some of the kids are like, let's mix them, see what happens, you know, and you drink it, you'd have grapple juice, right? Grape juice and apple juice, grapple juice. That is not the image of the incarnation where you have a, a take a divine nature and a human nature and you mix them together and you get a third nature that's different from a divine and human. That is not the imagery. It's, there, there is a true union of a divine and human nature and yet not a mixture of the two. One does not override the other. In other words, he doesn't have a, a divinized humanity or a humanized divinity, but rather he is true God and true man in one person. And so this is why we would say as well that Jesus has how many wills? He has two wills. Because the divine nature, Father, Son, and Spirit, share one divine will, and yet he is a true human, and to be human means you have a will, and so he has a human will. And the clearest text for this is in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is praying, and he says, not my will, but your will be done. Which blows our circuits as well, as you see this interaction of the, the divine will and the, and the human will in this one person. Incredible. Now, the, to be sure, the human will of Jesus was always aligned with the divine will of the triune God. And so we love to say the statement that remaining what he was, truly God, he became what he was not, 
truly man. Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. And there's that word became. Stephen Charnock wrote this about the incarnation. Quote, what a wonder that two natures infinitely distant should be more intimately united than anything in the world. That the same person should have both a glory and a grief, an infinite joy in the deity and an inexpressible sorrow in the humanity. That a God upon a throne should be an infant in a cradle. The thundering creator be a weeping babe and a suffering man. The incarnation astonishes men upon earth and angels in heaven. This is the profundity of the incarnation because of the person of the incarnation. This then leads us to our third truth about the incarnation, the presence of the incarnation. The presence of the incarnation. Look again, verse 14. We're gonna add on to this. You're gonna have this verse memorized by the time we're done. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The incarnation brings God to man and man to God. But in what sense? In what sense? Well, this is not a doing away of the creator-creature distinction, but rather it is a dwelling that overcomes our moral and spiritual separation from God due to sin. See, this is the issue. It's not that God would make us to be God, and so thus there would be no creator-creature distinction. No, no, no. That's not possible. We are finite. He's infinite. That's not the bridge to, to overcome. It is the moral separation because of sin that keeps us from a right relationship with our creator. God is everywhere present in the totality of his being, but you may not experience his presence of favor towards you, his presence to bless you because of not being in a right relationship. So to have the, the presence of God in the sense of to have his presence to bless, you must be rightly related to this God. And that is what the incarnation brings about, that he would dwell among us in this sense. Now, John uses a, an interesting word here for dwell or dwelt. It's, it's a word that uh, the noun means a tent, a tent. And so here's, he's using it as a verb. And so the idea is he pitched his tent, is the idea, among us. And you think, okay, why would he say it like that? Well, just think about John's reading his Bible, which is the Old Testament. And where do you have a tent in the Old Testament? Well, you have a tabernacle, right? The tabernacle is the precursor to the temple, and it's the place where God dwells in a special way with his people and shows that the way that he can dwell among his people is through sacrifice. And so it's as if he's saying, this eternal word took on flesh and tabernacled among us. And so John wants us to connect the person of Christ to the divine presence dwelling in the tabernacle. Now, we, we often speak about the mosaic system as uh, uh, having types and shadows, and the substance belongs to Christ. They, these are pictures pointing us forward to Christ. And so, so it is with the tabernacle. All that the tabernacle was finds its pinnacle in the person of Christ and its fulfillment. Now, to really appreciate this, you need a little bit more of a biblical theology on presence. 
course, the tabernacle is where God is going to specially dwell with his people. You know, the benefit of the new covenant is that we have this special relationship with God as a personal indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Prior to that, to get near to the presence of God, you had to go to where the tabernacle was and later the temple. And so this tabernacle, when it was built, you have all these instructions that maybe you've skipped over before, uh, but there's a lot of richness in there because if you look at it carefully, you'll find that God intentionally made the tabernacle to look like the Garden of Eden. He wanted all these things to remind you when you walk, like, you know, big cathedrals, they want to make you feel small and, and, and just because the grandeur of God. They're communicating something in the aesthetic in the architecture. Well, the tabernacle was to do that too. It was to remind them of Eden. Now, why would, why would it remind you of Eden? Because this is where man dwelt with God in perfect relationship, where the presence of God was with man unhindered. And so it's a way to say, there's a way back to Eden. There's a way back to Eden. And so later the temple is, is given, and that has a lot of imagery as well and symbolism to make it remind the people of Eden as well. And it kind of locks those things in even further. But in the tabernacle and later the temple, the way to God was through sacrifice. This is how you get to God. You have to sacrifice. And he's setting up these, these truths and these paradigms that will be picked up and slot right in to what the person of Christ will do. Now, later in Israel's history, they would defile their temple so much that God's glory would leave the temple in Ezekiel and God would have the temple destroyed. He gives Ezekiel this image of, uh, of how, what's going on in the temple while he's in exile. And he's, it, it's, it's like they've brought in actual idols into the temple. And they're bowing down, they're worshiping, they're worshiping the sun in the temple. Turning their backs on the Holy of Holies. This would be like someone committing adultery with their spouse in the house. I mean, this is what God pictures it as. He's like, this is how horrible Israel's idolatry is. And so they're done. You're going into exile and the temple is getting destroyed. My glory is leaving the temple. And that's what happens. Yet God promised in Isaiah that a child would be born in the midst of Israel's exile in order to break the exile and overcome it. And this child, Isaiah further elaborates on, would suffer on behalf of his people as a sacrifice to justify the many. And this one would build the temple of God in the future. He would be known, according to Isaiah 7.14, 14, as Emmanuel, God with us. This is what was spoken of Jesus at his birth in Matthew 1.23, or 1.21. The presence of God with man is the promise of Christmas in the incarnation. To have fellowship with God, you must come to Jesus, who is the ultimate temple of God. For as Paul says in Colossians 2.9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And here's why Paul will say in Hebrews chapter, chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God 
to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the help of those who are tempted. And so here we have one who can bring us into the presence of God because he is that sacrifice. The way to God, the way to the presence of God in the tabernacle and temple is through sacrifice. And so Jesus is the ultimate temple of God who tabernacled among us and he has given his own body, own life as a sacrifice to bring his people to God that they might enjoy his presence. And if we were to fast forward to Revelation, you would see how God's glory fills the whole earth and that we dwell with him shall see his face, be with him forever. This is the promise that we see come to its climax in the incarnation. This is the presence of the incarnation. Notice fourth, the pleasure of the incarnation. The pleasure of the incarnation. You can already kind of infer this by if God's presence can be with man, if if man can enjoy the creator rightly, what a pleasure that is. But even further still, he elaborates and says in verse 14 again, we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. In the Old Testament, where God dwells, his glory often is said to be present and fills that place. So there's this close connection between God's dwelling and God's glory. But what is the nature of this glory? Right, what is glory, right? We often talk about glory as the, the significance, the weightiness uh, of who God is. And why, why would we say that? Well, because glory really represents the sum total of all that God is. It is, he is glorious because of who he is. He is significant, weighty. And so this glory is not a different glory from the Father. No, he says it's the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Now, I, I, I chose the, LSB here, because I think they do a better job translating this old word, only begotten, which I think is the right way that this should be taken. Um, it, some take it as unique, and it can refer to that in other contexts, but John seems to be making a contrast between those who are, are born again because they're united to the one who is only begotten. That, John wants you to make that connection. Uh, those who are born, not of the will of the flesh uh, or uh, the... the uh, or of blood, or of the will of man, but are born of God. And, and how are they born of God? Well, they're united to the one who's the only begotten. So, so what does this word mean? I don't think you've probably used the word begotten lately. I mean, maybe around Christmas in your Christmas card, but, but in, a, in a sentence, what does that mean? Well, you have to remember that for God to actually communicate to finite creatures, he at times has to like do some baby talk for us. He has to speak in finite terms to communicate infinite realities because of our pea brains, right? How else are you going to communicate these things? That's your head exploding, you know? And so here you have this idea of begetting, which we think of, and rightly so, we think of as someone produces something, right? It, it, you know, a father begets a child, but we, we ought not to think about this begetting when it refers to the Son as an event that takes place in time. Rather, the scriptures portray this as an eternal begetting. It is not something that just wasn't happening and then started to happen. It is something that's always taken place. And you're like, well, how does that work? How do you have an eternal begetting, a forever begetting? Well, theologians call this the eternal generation of the Son, 
Think of like generating something. Uh, that, this is the idea of some, that happening eternally, forever. It sounds contradictory, but how else are you going to communicate this eternal reality? Here's what one uh, systematic theology says, quote, within the realm of creation, the term begotten speaks of the origin of one's offspring. In the design of God, each creature begets offspring according to its kind. Christ, in his deity, however, is not a created being. He had no beginning, but is as timeless as God himself. Therefore, the begetting has nothing to do with the origin either of his deity or his humanity, but it has everything to do with him sharing the same essence as the Father. It goes on to say that one true archetypal father-son relationship exists eternally within the Trinity. All others are simply earthly replicas, imperfect because they are bound up in mankind's finiteness, yet illustrating a vital, eternal reality. Now, here's why this is significant. When you ask the question, okay, if father, son, and spirit are co-equal, co-eternal, consubstantial with one another, what distinguishes them? What distinguishes them from one another? And this is what distinguishes the father from the son, the son from the father. Begottenness, filiation, is what distinguishes the son as son from the father and the spirit. Spiration, that, that the spirit proceeds from the father and the, the son, is what distinguishes the son. And paternity, that the father is the father of the son, is what distinguishes the father. How does this work? Well, John actually helps us a little bit in John chapter 5, verse 26. John chapter 5, verse 26. He writes, well, this is Jesus speaking. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Now, to have life in yourself means you are a say. It's a Latin term. Aseity is an is a attribute of God that we, that we recognize. It means that he's from himself. He doesn't look to other things to derive his existence. He's self-sufficient. And so God, he's like a, a spring. He, he, here's a good a, a biblical illustration. The burning bush. Here Moses sees a bush that's on fire, but it's not consuming any fuel. It's, a, it's an eternal flame that doesn't require fuel because it's from itself. It supplies itself with everything it needs. And that's God. He, he doesn't require anything or depend upon any fuel to exist, so to speak. And so he has life in himself. And so then he, he says that even so, the, the, he gave, the father gave to the son also to have life in himself. In other words, this is the idea of begetting. That the father eternally, not in a moment of time, but eternally grants life to the son. You think, how does that work? How, I don't know. But this is the imagery that God has chosen to speak. Now, here's, the, here's the, as simple as it gets. How do you become a father? You have a son, right? How are you a son? You have a father, right? So this is what distinguishes them. The father has always had a son. And the son has always had a father. That's this idea that there was never a time when the father was not the father because he's always had a son. And he's always been, in our phrase, you know, eternally begetting him, eternally generating him. You think that's, that's, that's the profundity of this. That's, that's what's so, that's what the pleasure of this. 
He's always been giving out his life to the son, showing his love to the son forever. And dear Christian, in part, as a finite creature, this is what you and I are brought into to enjoy this love. God doesn't add love to himself because he creates someone. No, he's really good at this. He's always been loving his son. Listen to John 17. John 17. It's Jesus' high priestly prayer. In verse five, he says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Before the world even existed, the Son had glory with the Father. They had the same eternal glory as God of very God, light of light. And he's saying, restore that to me. God is eternally satisfied in himself. This is, uh, this is eternal life. John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Here's this triune love. Before the world was created, before anything was created, the Father is loving his Son. The Son is receiving that love from the Father and it's being poured out through the Holy Spirit. For you loved me before the foundation of the world and he wants to make that known to those who are his. You see everything about this? The son has eternally satisfied the father for all eternity. With you, I am well pleased, my beloved son. Don't you think he can satisfy you in this life and into eternity? If the eternal God has been satisfied in the son, the eternal father forever? Oh yeah, there's a lot of pleasure here to be enjoyed. It just goes on and on. I don't know if you struggle with this, buying a gift for someone who's especially difficult to get a gift for. I get this person, you know. God is like this. You can't give a gift to God. You know, who's given a gift to him that he might be repaid by him? Romans 11. He doesn't need anything, right? Because he's immutable. He's completely satisfied in himself for all eternity. God doesn't create because he's lonely. Hmm, I wish I had some creatures to play with. No, He, he, he does it for our benefit. He owns everything. So it's like the kid who buys their parent a present with the money that they had. You know, it's like, here, I'll buy this for myself. Uh, What is it that satisfies God? Himself. Himself. And we enjoy and have pleasure when we glorify God by enjoying him, by delighting in who he is. This Trinitarian glory enjoyed and beheld is the greatest gift for creatures. Yet, this glory is hidden to the spiritually blind. John says we beheld his glory, but he means we as in a saving we, like those who've really come to embrace and trust in Christ for salvation. They beheld that glory. Others, they're blind to the glory of God in the face of Christ because the God of this world has blinded their minds from seeing it, 2 Corinthians 4.4. But we, we've beheld his glory. It is that tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. And beholding glory transforms, right? 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, we have this idea, or 4.6, beholding leads to regeneration. You behold the glory of the Son, you're born again. It also relates to sanctification, 2 Corinthians 
And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, being transformed from one degree of glory into another by the Spirit. And so the way you mature and grow from glory to glory is through beholding the glory of Christ. And glorification, final glorification happens that way as well. 1 John 3, 1. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. It will transform us. This is the pleasure of the incarnation. It allows us to see glory, the glory that we were made for, the glory that satisfies our hearts both now and into eternity. This is why Psalm 1611 says, in your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand, pleasures forevermore. Why are there pleasures forevermore? Because the eternal God has forever enjoyed the pleasure of his own fellowship. This is the only true God, the God who's enjoyed himself forever and then welcomes us into this. This is finally, we see the provision of the incarnation, the provision of the incarnation. Look at one more time at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Christ is full of grace and truth. Listen to a parallel passage in Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, or sorry, Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us that denying ungodliness and worldly desires, we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our, listen to this, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yeah, Paul got it. This one is God, a very God. And notice how he says the grace of God has appeared. Grace is a person. His name is Jesus. He appeared to bring salvation. He appeared to bring salvation. Listen to what Martin Luther wrote about this. He says, quote, the spring, this spring is inexhaustible. It is full of grace and truth from God. It never loses anything, no matter how much we draw, but remains an infinite fountain of all grace and truth. The more you draw from it, the more abundantly it gives of the water that springs into eternal life. Just as the sun is not darkened by the whole world enjoying its light and could indeed light up 10 worlds, just as 100,000 lights might be lit from one light and not detract from it, just as a learned man is able to make a thousand others learned and the more he gives, the more he has. So is Christ, our Lord, an infinite source of all grace, so that if the whole world would draw enough grace and truth from it to make the world all angels, yet it would not lose a drop. The fountain always runs over full of grace. Amen. So have you received the grace of God who is the Lord Jesus Christ? Dear, dear, dear Christian, this is the, the sweet gift we continue to receive. It is continually satisfied the Father, the Son, and it continually should satisfy us as well as we come back again and drink deeply again and again of the Lord Jesus Christ and his person. The person who does not know Christ, I beg of you, I plead with you, receive the Lord Jesus Christ, the grace of God who has appeared to bring salvation to all people who will trust in him. He is God of God, light of light. He is the only hope for mankind. He's the only one who can reconcile God and man and bring you into the pleasure of fellowship with your creator. There is no other way, no other way 
God does not need you to serve him, but he exists to supply you with himself. God is not like Satan who just sucks in and just wants more and more from you to take from you because he's needy. Now God is an infinite fountain who needs nothing from you, but lives to give to you, to supply you everything you need. And so service to God is simply receiving the supply that he already gives you and enjoying all of that forever. At the end of It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey resumes life back right where he was on the bridge about to jump. And now his wish to have never been born has been reversed. He's back as life was. But when he realizes he's back where he was, things start to come back that he has in fact been born, that it was all sort of a a dream, if you will, his entire perspective on life changes. Things that were bothering him, that were causes for depression and discouragement, all of a sudden are transformed into causes of great joy and rejoicing and laughter. He got punched in a bar and he's got a bloody lip and he, he goes, my lip's bleeding, right? And he realizes, oh, I mean, you would be upset at that. But now he's so joyful because I'm alive. He realizes it. (laughs) It changes his perspective. He sees and he laughs at how providence works. The greatest gift is the gift of life, but not just physical life, but eternal life, to enjoy the life of God forever. That's the greatest gift. Having seen some of what the incarnation means, we may go now with a changed perspective on all things in life, even the little things. And so we say, what if the incarnation never happened? Play the thought experiment, run it back, and then go, oh yeah, but it did. It totally happened. And it transforms all the little things and the big things so that you go, oh, praise God. Peace with God. This is all real. Oh, the difference it makes in our lives that Jesus was born. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the sweetness of the incarnation, the profundity of it, the saving power in it. Lord, if there are those here who have not embraced Christ, that you would do what we cannot do in and of ourselves. We can only bring the word, sow the seed, but you must grant a life. You must grant this eternal life. And Lord, you can do this for any sinner who has sinned against you, a holy God, is separated from you, whose wrath bears down upon them outside of Christ. You can overcome their blindness, overcome their darkness and their sin and their wrong views about you to repent and to receive the Lord Jesus Christ, truly God, truly man, perfectly righteous, substitute for sinners, raised gloriously, ascended to your right hand and returning Lord. May they do so and enjoy the greatest gift of eternal life, of knowing you. And Lord, may we especially prize these things today, tomorrow, in this season, Lord, and throughout eternity, Lord, that you have come, that we might dwell with you. In Jesus' name.